0: Hello, and welcome to Linux Action News, episode 136, recorded on December 15th, 2019. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. Good to be connected with you over Microsoft Teams this... Okay, not really, but (laughs) we do start out with a big announcement from Microsoft this week. Yes, Microsoft
1: Teams is available on Linux. There's a dev file and an RPM, and I'm sure everyone rushed out to install it straight away.
0: Well, we did obviously need another chat client for Linux, clearly. Um, (laughs) Joking aside, this is still kind of a big deal, simply as it seems to be the first official Office 365 application for Linux. In a way, this had to be the first one, because all of the other applications will sort of wrap into this. And I say other applications because Microsoft themselves is directly hinting that this is the beginning of Office 365 coming for Linux. If we have an episode where we're announcing Word is available for Linux or Excel is available for Linux, even if it's an Electron app, I'm having a shot on the show or something. Like, we have to celebrate <laughs> that. That that would be mind-blowing to, to previous past Chris.
1: Yeah, and past most people, really. <laughs> they do say Microsoft Teams client is the first Microsoft 365 app that's coming to Linux desktops. So that heavily implies that you're right. The rest of them will be coming, presumably, in 2020.
0: The other thing that they make pretty clear in this post, which we'll have linked in the show notes, linuxactionnews.com slash 136, this is something that their customers asked for. This is in response to customer demand, which I think we should just let that have a moment. That's really impressive. They have a quote on here from uh, Jimmy Beckman, who is in charge of personal products for... Volvo, he writes, quote, at Volvo Cars, Linux is being used by many users in several departments. Until now, our Linux users have largely been stuck on a collaboration island with different unofficial and unsupported clients for Skype business and more recently Microsoft Teams. But with Teams for Linux from Microsoft, we have been able to leave that island and collaborate across our different platforms with full functionality with a rich client. That's amazing, and they say that this is a huge improvement for them because, number one, they can now do reliable screen sharing with other members of Volvo from their Linux desktops. There are six things I like about that statement. And number one, with a bullet on that list, is it blows my mind that it is now Microsoft software that is making it possible for those Linux users in different companies to actually run the Linux desktop. In my day, that was the current I was constantly fighting. I was trying to solve exchange and word compatibility constantly. And now, it's Microsoft software with Visual Studio Code, which is the one that came to mind first, and now things like Teams that is making it possible for people to choose to run Linux. Wow, Joe. I mean, that just really, that's number one on my list. There's there's five others.
1: <laughs> well, it's not a huge surprise to me. If you really think about the long-term trend it kind of almost goes back to Apple giving away the macOS updates for free and setting that precedent that operating systems are free of cost. And so Microsoft had to follow suit with that. And they don't really care what operating system you're using now, as long as you're connecting to their services and paying for 365 and developers are paying for Azure. What does it matter to them whether you're using Windows 10 or Ubuntu?
0: I absolutely agree. I might argue that the pressure from free and open source software operating systems sort of forced Apple's hand and Microsoft's hand, but you're right, as far as commercial OSs go, I, I, I kind of follow what you're saying there. It's all about the services. All roads lead to Azure, et cetera, et cetera. However, there is a practical difference when you start combining all of it. When you look at .NET Core, when you look at PowerShell for Linux, when you look at Visual Studio Code, and now Teams, there is a suite of software that is maintained by Microsoft that makes it possible to run Linux desktop. And I mentioned Visual Studio Code specifically because that's something that I, in the last three months, have started using pretty seriously and just think it's a really fantastic editor. And just last week, because I've kind of been doing it in baby steps, I, I learned that it allows me to edit my system files and it will prompt for my sudo password so I don't have to run code as root Man, it's just, it feels like a first class editor on Linux. And I was thinking, like, if I were ever to leave Linux and switch to a Mac OS desktop or a, like, a Windows 10 desktop of some future iteration, I would still take Visual Studio Code with me. I would still take Vivaldi with me. I would take a couple of these key applications. Um, and I could see others that would take other applications they make, like PowerShell and .NET Core, et cetera. It really is a, it's a new era. Where where all of these things are kind of coming together and they're making a real actual measurable contribution, and I, I mean I, I just can't even believe these words about it come out of my mouth. I think my Linux desktop is better thanks to software made by Microsoft today. Oh, wow,
1: I know. Hate mail to Chris, please not me. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, Alan at jupiterbroadcasting.com. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I know it. It's crazy to my to my brain, but it's true. I really have found Visual Studio Code. As I've gotten into Docker and editing YAML files and it's Markdown support, it's just a great app.
1: We talked last week about Ubuntu Pro for AWS and how a big part of that was the compliance story. Well, again, compliance is at the heart of this, I think. If your organization says that you have to use Microsoft Teams to be compliant, which is the reality for a lot of enterprises, and you have to use Edge, the browser, we're getting close to a point where you can do that on Linux. And that, I think, is the the real key here. If you're going to deploy Linux at scale in the enterprise on the desktop, you need to have that compliance story straight. Or
0: even if it's not at scale, Joe, I mean, even if it's just 20, 15, 30 people, they're now able to fully collaborate.
1: Yeah, true. So this is good news. Even if you're not going to use Teams, which I'm not going to, I have no interest in using Office
0: 365,
1: quite frankly, but it is going to benefit all of us because it will ultimately mean more users of the Linux desktop.
0: Yeah, I got an email from uh, a listener who works at Microsoft, and he runs Linux all day, every day, and he said, you know, I've been testing this for a while, and let me tell you, just here at Microsoft, this is going to make a big difference in my day-to-day job. And I haven't asked him specifically, but I've got the impression that there is more more than a handful of people that are running Linux full-time at Microsoft. The individual I was speaking to is running Gentoo at Microsoft. Wow. (laughs) So you just never know where it's going to go. I mean, good for them. Teams looks really great. However, uh, I'm all about the Zulip hype.
1: Yeah, there was a release this week of Zulip 2.1, which is somewhat like Slack and Mattermost and Teams, but it has this kind of unique feature in that it has topic-based threading. Now, I have to admit something here. Until this week, I'd never heard of Zulip.
0: Okay, all right. All right, I have to admit I did not know of it either. (laughs) (laughs) But it looks really cool. I mean, like everything else is just completely inadequate now compared to Zulip. They talk about a couple of things in here that really resonate with me. But the other thing I kind of grokked when reading through this was this could be a perfect solution for open source projects that want to move away from mailing lists, but they don't want to go into some sort of weird app-only chat ecosystem. Because Zulip has some really nice export to HTML features that still reproduce that mail archive-like list from your chats. But the thing that really makes Zulip stand out is the way they speak to my brain. They have built a chat collaboration system that allows for busy Silly discussions with GIFs, lots of little silly posts that are taking up the chat while still allowing people from all different time zones to follow the important bits and allow management. In fact, they even make a, they make a point here that really clicked with me. They said, in practice, organizations that use Slack, many senior personnel don't read the entire channel messages at all or only read a handful of the smaller channels is that not literally what happens with me and some of our channels sometimes when things get busy? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I know. And it's true for all of the leadership at Linux Academy. Like it really is a problem to stay up to date with all the different Slack channels that we have. This is organized by topics where you can have a channel and then you have subtopics and it's designed to allow remote workers that are in different time zones to participate and make information more discoverable that is critical to like a project or something you're trying to actually execute and get done. It, It's really clever. And then you combine combine that with the fact that it's all open source and designed to publicly archive all of the discussions to make it discoverable by the greater community. Check, check, check for me. I really think this is impressive. Haven't run it yet, but Zulip looks like it's a Slack killer to me for open source projects.
1: You know what jumped out at me from this release announcement? That there's a one-click DigitalOcean deployment.
0: Well, that's speaking to a need here. That's one of the things about Slack that makes it really easy to set up or maybe remote-hosted Mattermost as a service is its one-button deployment. Well, they got that with this, and I think that's really important for a lot of projects. They don't have a lot of people on a project. They just want to start collaborating and get to work. They don't want to spend a day standing up a server. You know, if time allows over the holiday, I might dig into the backstory of Zulip because it's it seems very feature-complete, and they're now releasing 2.1, which is really the main headline this week. I feel a little embarrassed that I didn't know about this and I may have been using this had I known about it sooner and um, maybe I could find out the backstory and where they came from and how long they've been doing this. I'll dig into it over the holiday if time allows.
1: Well also over the holiday you could potentially host an instance on a Raspberry Pi.
0: Running Ubuntu of all things. This is really nice to see two things coming out of Canonical this week regarding the Raspberry Pis. Number one USB ports are now functional on the 64-bit images for the Raspberry Pi 4, which is something that bit me. Very nice to see that. But number two, and perhaps bigger picture, the Raspberry Pi is now considered, or maybe has been considered, but is officially publicly stated by Canonical, a first-class platform.
1: Yeah, they say, we're working with the Raspberry Pi Foundation to have an officially supported image of Ubuntu available at every new release of a Raspberry Pi board. That's pretty big. That's huge. Because it's taken a while for the Raspberry Pi 4, but if they're going to get together with them and whatever the next Pi is, there'll be day one support. That's, that's amazing.
0: Yeah, they don't say they have something sorted out with the foundation, but they're working towards it, which either means that Canonical will just brute force make it happen, or if best case scenario, (laughs) they'll get a heads up from the foundation and get some pre-production boards. Also very worth noting when you consider edge devices or development experimentation, they plan to deliver Ubuntu Server 1804 and Ubuntu Core for the Raspberry Pi boards for all of them and officially support it, which kind of plays into their overall Kubernetes cluster strategy, but also their developer story. Well, we talked about last week how
1: ARM's getting more and more popular and having a board there that you know is going to be supported by Ubuntu to build your applications on and do your testing is going to make more and more people use Ubuntu, which is what Canonical wants.
0: The other thing that I know some that are listening to this are screaming right now is there's more powerful systems in the Raspberry Pi. Guys, don't you know? Uh, yes, we do know. But the Raspberry Pi has a very steady, predictable cadence. And it has the deepest ecosystem, both in third-party images, community support, etc. And it, without a question, has the largest brand awareness. And it has the sheer numbers as well.
1: Evan Upton this week tweeted that they've sold 30 million Raspberry Pis. And he also said that that makes the revenue a billion dollars that they've taken in by selling these things.
0: I mean, these are McDonald's hamburgers numbers at this point. No, not quite, but,
1: you know, they're, they're certainly numbers that you can't ignore. It's it's not quite the kind of iPhone numbers or whatever, but can you imagine if they sold 30 million Pine phones or something? That would be quite the story.
0: Right, and I think the the unspoken truth here is, None of us doubt that there will be a Raspberry Pi 5 or several iterations of the 4 that might even go up to 8 gigs of RAM or beyond. That's just a foregone conclusion at this point. And that kind of reliable cadence is the exact type of thing developers find comfort in. It means I can prototype a product around this platform, and I can kind of already foresee where it's going without it even being written down. That's the exact kind of thing that draws people to build things around something. I think this is a very clever move on Canonical's part, to say it so boldly, because I think a lot of distributions have every intention of supporting future Raspberry Pis. I bet a lot of them do. But by implicitly stating it, they are reassuring the developer community that this is going to be a thing. And that's the sort of psychological aspect to this market that I think Canonical and the people behind Ubuntu really get. Well, all
1: that might well become irrelevant once Fuchsia takes over.
0: Dun, dun, dun. The operating system that seems to taunt Joe and I. I don't know if it taunts anybody else out there. But we're always (laughs) watching what's going on with Fuchsia because it does seem like Google's skunk work project to replace Linux one day. And then the trickle-down effects of that, well, they get one to think. However, it seems that the takeover is a slow and methodical approach if it is coming, and it starts really with support for a new piece of hardware, one that you may be familiar with. It was discovered a while back that there was a Chrome OS tablet coming that had wireless charging, and then later revealed that the codename was, I think it's Flapjack, Joe? (laughs) Delicious Flapjack, yeah. Yeah, and I guess it's going to run both Chrome OS and also will run Fuchsia.
1: Yeah, I don't think you're going to be able to buy it running Fuchsia, but I think it's going to be a target for Fuchsia for developers. So they'll be able to buy this relatively inexpensive tablet and then have a target device to do the development.
0: That seems to be the name of the game here. Because if you look at the long strategy here, Fuchsia OS has gained support for an actual decent amount of devices at this point, including several smart home products like the Nest Hub and the Nest Hub Max, um, some smartphones like the Honor Play, and um, people are getting it working on the Pixel 2, as well as the new Pixelbook and a couple of AMD Chromebooks can already run Fuchsia. And now this will be added to that list. But like you said, it's expected to be kind of at a price range more akin to the old Nexus devices, approachable by developers. It's just missing one critical piece, and that's apps.
1: Well, Google wants you to build those apps using Flutter, and that's had a release this week.
0: Not just that, but it was Flutter Interact in New York City this week, a big Flutter event where they announced their ambient computing initiative now includes Flutter for the web and Flutter for the Mac. I think the idea here is to get the developers ahead of the game using Flutter, using Dart, which immediately translates to application compatibility with Fuchsia. Yeah, this is very much Google playing the long game on this,
1: and it seems like it could be a pretty successful strategy to me.
0: There's a couple of examples of Flutter for the web applications that are now live, and they're decent. They're actually kind of decent web applications. This is the very long game. For Google to go about it this methodically, where they're building this operating system up from the ground and then getting an ecosystem built by using these third-party devices over a period of years. Um, if this eventually pops, it's going to be huge. That's what kind of disturbs me about it. I'd almost, i feel better about it if they were more traditional and they just released a half-baked product that wasn't really all that great running on a Pixelbook knockoff that YouTubers would say is horrible and everybody should buy an iPad instead, and then we'd just move on and everybody would keep using Linux. But instead, they're like doing it the right way. And it kind of makes me wonder if this isn't going to be a thing that we have to contend with. And I don't know what that means long term.
1: The analogy I would make is with someone who wants to be an entertainer, right? If you've got that backup career And you can just go for it slowly and build your other career, your new entertainment career, being, you know, rock star or actor or whatever. Podcaster. Podcaster, yeah. You don't have that (laughs) pressure on you that it has to be done right now. And they have got Chrome OS. They've got Android. And so there's no rush for this. They can just slowly, slowly build it up until it's ready.
0: And then suddenly Linux is just crushed. At least on the mobile market. I would just hate it if we had to wipe that smug look off our face when we see people pull out Android phones and we think to ourselves, Linux user, you don't even know it, but you're running Linux. (laughs) I would hate to lose that. That's a moment of pride in my day right now.
1: (laughs) Well, I'm more worried about servers, to be honest, because there's no reason why you can't adapt it in the same way that Linux you can use as a desktop operating system or on the server or in containers and cloud, whatever. There's not really any reason why long term, Fuchsia can't do that.
0: That'll be the day. Over my dead body, Joe. That's not happening. No way. Linux from my lifetime has won the server. I think that really is true because it's the platform that lets you run anything you want. If you remember when Mono was a thing, remember Java and wine and PHP, these like all these different crazy systems. They wouldn't be in some clean, nice vendor controlled platform. Right, Only Linux allows you to build the application and whatever the hell you need to get the job done in, and then run it on a server and run it at scale. And I, I just think that's too invaluable. The processor architecture could change, but the fundamentals about a general-purpose technology platform that is freely available for anyone to take and then build their product around with no major, cor- one singular corporation controlling it all, it's too good to pass up. So I think on the server, we're safe. However... Mobile, maybe laptops, a little bit worried. (laughs) Just a little bit. Well, the way I see
1: it, the underlying operating system is becoming less and less important. And if you can make it more efficient in terms of power, electricity and everything, does it really matter what's running underneath all the
0: containers? I know, that is true. I'll tell you, my moment of panic will be when Microsoft releases Office 365 apps for Fuchsia. (laughs) (laughs) When Teams comes out for Fuchsia, I'm freaking out.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it probably won't be that long, but we'll see. There's probably
0: more chance of Twitter being decentralized than that, though. What do you think of this Project Blue story, or whatever they're calling it, where they, they claim they're going to set up a strike team of around five individuals or so within Twitter, but also kind of their own organization, potentially, to develop or end up adopting a protocol-based decentralized platform for Twitter, where Twitter itself would become a client of that said new decentralized platform.
1: I'm very skeptical. They're calling it Project Blue Sky.
0: That's what it is, yeah.
1: It's funded by Twitter, but it's going to be an external entity somehow. It seems like if you're really going to do something like that, five people, that's not really enough, is it?
0: Well, I mean, it could be if you adopt an existing standard like ActivityPub and throw millions of dollars at it and three or four developers, that that could work. If you're going to roll your own solution and invent your own new protocol and standard, I don't think so. You'd have to grow it pretty rapidly. This whole thing, Joe, is really strange because this was more like how Twitter started. They made changes back in 2012 begun the process of locking this down and centralizing it. I don't know if you recall, but there's a great Verge piece we'll have linked in the show notes, and they write on here, Death came to the Twitter developer community on August 12, 2012. In an infamous memo, the company's head of product divided potential uses of the Twitter API into four quadrants. I think we all remember, if if you're a Twitter user at least, when that happened. That policy led Twitter to become Really, a centralized platform that was designed to sell advertising. Interestingly enough, at the time, the CEO of Twitter was a former Googler who was hell-bent on <laughs> building an ad platform. Kind of funny how that works. Now, Jack Dorsey takes over. He has been a little more resistant to censorship or shutting things down to some degree. Some he saw, you know, can argue it, but it seems like maybe he really does see Twitter as a, a possible SMTP of the future. And maybe if you're to if you're to take him at his word, he really wants to decentralize this thing, so that way you could have some versions of Twitter that are tightly controlled with speech, and others that are sort of a wild west. I, uh, but that's just wishful thinking, I, I think. Joe, did you listen to the two podcasts he did with Rogan? Bits of it. I really, I just don't care enough about Twitter to go any further. <laughs>
1: I asked because what came across to me on those two podcasts is that he sees himself as a visionary, Jack Dorsey. He feels that Twitter is nowhere near complete in terms of what it's going to become. And so I'm not hugely surprised that he's got this grand vision for it. But it just seems like we have decentralized social media already with Mastodon and we had Diaspora. And okay, they are relatively popular, but. They are just dwarfed by the size of Twitter. And it's it's very, very difficult to make a decentralized system popular. The, the whole point of Twitter is everyone's there. And yeah, okay, if it's federated across loads of different servers, everyone will be on one of them somehow. But until someone makes it as simple as signing up for Twitter and then it's just at your name to talk to other people and follow them... I don't think that decentralized social media is going to go anywhere, but I I don't know. He is this real visionary, at least in his own head he is. So maybe he is going to be the person to do this, but I'm just very skeptical.
0: I got a vision. How about a social communications platform where anyone could host their own server or there could be large centralized servers, depending on your preferred flavor? And then there'd be a bunch of third-party clients that could match your particular style. And you could connect to multiple servers from one client. And then on these servers, you could have individual rooms dedicated to topics for individual particular areas of interest. What do you think of that? And it could be on any server, or it could be on centralized servers, whichever you prefer. Would all of the rooms have
1: to start with a pound sign?
0: Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yes, I'm talking about IRC, obviously.
1: (laughs) Yeah, this is somewhat reinventing the wheel, I suppose. But it would be interesting if Twitter was just one client that connected to the network. Yeah. I have seen people saying that it is just Jack Dorsey trying to get out of this moderation problem that they have and trying to kind of wash his hands of the responsibility for moderating the platform.
0: I could see that. However, I think that's sort of shortchanging the importance of the topic of communication, look at just our episode, Microsoft Teams for Linux, which is a direct competitor to Slack, which has completely changed the way companies communicate and a lot of projects communicate. And and then we talked about an open source competitor, Zulip, that's offering things that solve problems like time zone differences and busy, goofy, different discussion groups and public posting and, and review. And now here we are discussing Twitter, which has become sort of a centralized communication platform of signals that some people think should be broken up. And I think the underlying theme of all of it is how we communicate online and the bandwidth of that communication, the richness of that communication is becoming more important than ever. And while I make jokes about IRC, I think it is clear that IRC was not high enough bandwidth. It was not rich enough in information and detail and that there is a strong desire for a better way to communicate. And then there are a bunch of players like Slack, like Microsoft, and others like Twitter and Facebook and et cetera that want to be the resource that everybody goes to to solve this problem. I mean, it's clear this is a massive theme of this year, just looking at it right here in just this one episode. Well, who knows what's going to happen, but
1: there's a quote at the end of that Verge article that you mentioned from a a former employee of Twitter, and they say, well, it's Twitter So nothing's going to happen for 20
0: years. (laughs) And in the meantime, things will just keep moving forward. On Linux, gaming may have a bit of a bumpy road in the near future. One of the key developers, the main developer behind DXVK, has recently expressed some frustrations and some plans to transition the project into maintenance mode, even if it's not necessarily feature complete yet. Yeah, Philip says that
1: DXVK has become a fragile, unreliable, and frustrating maintenance nightmare. That doesn't sound good, does it?
0: No, and this is kind of an important gaming technology for those of us who enjoy a game or two on Linux. As a reminder, DXVK is that Vulkan-based translation layer for Direct3D 10 or 11, which allows those applications to translate to Vulkan calls, which makes them run on Linux. It's not going away, so it'll still exist... But he says, I'm going to add a few more features and then I think I'm done. Now, the community's already trying to come up with ways they could support him because this type of expertise is very unique. It's not like there's a 100 other developers with free time on their hands that could pick up this particular kind of heavy-hitting work.
1: Yeah, and combine that with Ferrell's lead Vulcan developer leaving the company to go to Sony, and it's kind of a double whammy.
0: Indeed. I, these individuals are highly coveted. They are extremely skilled. This is a very specialized area of work. And Alex Smith, who oversaw Farrell's Vulcan support, was key in seeing that company move to Vulcan, which opened up a whole new window of opportunity for Linux games. He also did work in the past on some Nintendo Switch ports for Farrell, as well as some of the Linux ports. So while it's a loss for Farrell, they had responded on Twitter saying that They do have more games planned for 2020, and they do have a fully functional direct 3D to Vulkan layer in place that so far is working for them. But when these two stories are combined, it does sort of feel like one of those couple of steps forward recently, but now we've taken maybe a half step back. We've lost a little momentum. Yeah, just when things
1: were seemingly going so well with gaming on Linux, it's a shame really. Although there was kind of a glimmer of hope for gaming on Linux, and that is that NVIDIA may possibly open source some drivers next year.
0: Yeah. Michael Larbel coming in with a hot, fresh rumor that's almost guaranteed to be a fact doomer. I'm not sure what you call that. But he says, start looking forward to March when NVIDIA looks to have some sort of open source driver initiative to announce, likely contributing more to NoVoo. This is based on a tip that he got on a GTC session, which is NVIDIA's event, that's happening in March. And they have a session titled Open Source Linux Kernel and NVIDIA. And the abstract of the talk is, we'll report up-to-minute developments on NVIDIA's status and activities and possibly a few future plans and directions regarding our contributions to the Linux kernel, supporting Novu, the open-source kernel driver for NVIDIA GPUs, That's in the Linux kernel and including signed firmware behavior, documentation and patches and NVIDIA's kernel drivers. End quote. If they even like do half of that stuff in March or announce a plan throughout 2020 to roll that out, that would be a huge enabler for not just gaming on Linux, but workstation graphic loads like CUDA and others on Linux. I mean, just massively huge for people that have spent good money on hardware in their computer. If you told me
1: that they were going to do this a year or so ago, I would have not believed you. I would have said there was more chance
0: of you pronouncing nouveau correctly. Right, absolutely. Which, let's face it, very small chance of that happening. (laughs) But this does look promising. It sure does. I mean, if it was just the rumor without that abstract, I'd be like, well, that could mean anything. That could just be a talk on how great a video is. But when you combine it with the abstract description, that's where it really makes you think something's about to shift. And perhaps it should. I have to say, I've really enjoyed the AMD graphics cards I've bought this year. I've popped them in my systems. And no fuss, I have fantastic 3D support for games, desktop effects, anything I want. And I never had to. I never had to even check a box.
1: Well, fingers crossed they are going to compete with it, and we will definitely follow that
0: progress as it goes throughout next year. I know it's big for you. I, you know you're a big GPU buyer. So, <laughs> this is what GPU do you have? I don't. Got this huge
1: case with no (laughs) GPU or hard drives or anything in it now I know what to get you for Christmas
0: (laughs) well we'll follow that and all the other stories as always so go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes
1: and linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch with us
0: we'll be back next week with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news I'm at Chris LAS I'm at Joe Wessington thanks for joining us and we will see you next week
1: see you later